Alrighty then, if everybody's ready for our three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 393, recorded on Sunday the 7th of August 2022. Trying not to get my tongue in a twist, I'm Norbert. Uh, nursing a sore back, I'm Bill. It's hot, I'm Joe. Reveling in fresh minty goodness, I'm Josh T. First up in the news, Vanessa is finally here. And so is the Linux kernel version 5.19, which was published from an M1 Mac by Linus Torvalds. In security and privacy, sale of over a billion Chinese users' data found. DuckDuckGo is finally blocking Microsoft trackers, and Linux 6.0 to have runtime verification for running on safety-critical systems. Then in our wanderings, Bill is hearing things, Joe is soldering on, and I am taming the fox. Uh, Mint 21 is out. New features. When can I upgrade without a nuke and pave? Uh, The answer to that is upgrade tool expected to be released tomorrow, Monday, August 8th. Um, So you can apt install it right now. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, And a little side note from Londoner. Just a reminder for anyone who likes to use the command line for updates and upgrades. Sudo is not required for the Mint version of apt. It is called automatically. However, you do, of course, need it with the Debian version of apt and with Mint upgrade. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And honestly, I'll probably still always type sudo because habit. Yeah, big habit. Because if I start if I start trying to develop the habit of not doing it and then all my other Debian based distros are going to suffer if and when they exist. I know that a couple of Arch uh, AUR helpers like Paru don't uh, need sudo to to be typed, but I I still do it when I use it because just yay will yay is like the most blessed one right now, and it will refuse to work if you give it sudo privileges. It'll tell you you shouldn't install AUR packages from uh, as root. Yeah, I think I think Peru is just a rewrite of EA in, in Rust. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Cool. But anyway, the, the um and I shared a link to the show notes um on the YouTube page, but to make it simple, the following will just work in Mint. You do an apt update and then an apt upgrade tack Y if you don't wanna mess with the interaction. And then you apt install Mint Upgrade. Mint Upgrade, all one word. That is the new package that is... It's a GUI application, sort of. Um, and then you do a sudo Mint Upgrade, and that opens up the GUI, which will walk you through kind of the process of doing an in-place upgrade from, what, 20.3 to uh 21 and i just did it an hour before the show and it was relatively benign i had no problem except for google chrome chromium 
anything like that just it just hung on me every time i tried to do anything so i don't know if that's because i did an uh, an in place upgrade or what but i had to completely get rid of chrome i'll get to that later on um however we recommend caution if you are not familiar with the command line uh rather wait for the official announcement on the linux mint blog and read the instructions there so if you're familiar and you're a madman like we are you can just go ahead and follow those it's relatively simple instructions i think yeah i'm running it on one of my machines right now yeah joe's actually running it right now and when i was doing it 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 came up with a few things i had to go back and fix along the way it wasn't all that dramatic. The one thing it, I had to fix was basically I had to get rid of the PPA for uh, Belena Etcher. And I just ended up uninstalling that application. Apparently at, some, at one point they had a PPA and then they didn't. They're not uh, keeping it up to date. So I don't know. I just got rid of that something else it ran into there was a few packages that didn't exist anymore and so it asked me to get rid of those two but it's rather thorough in its process of going through and uh making sure you've got the right stuff installed to to begin with and then it does some simulation and then the downloading and it almost doesn't let you screw it up from what i can tell so far I read it when I went to the official website for Etcher. It the official download was an app image, so I'm not sure if there are other and other official sources. So maybe they just want people to use the app image. Well, at the time that I installed it, I'm not a big fan of app image, and please keep your hate mail to a minimum. Um, at the time, on the same page that talked about the app image it said that there is also a ppa and that's how i that's how i got that ppa was from their website but that's been a few months back so i don't know if they don't support that anymore or if maybe it's only they're only uh maintaining a ppa for focal and not for jammy yet that's another thing that would cause this to happen you know so uh, there's a few reasons why that might not work right, but if I ever need that again, I'll just install the app image, I guess. It seems to be okay. It just, I, some app images don't have real good integration into the desktop, so I've never been a huge fan. But, uh, other than that, oh, I did have a problem. I'll get to that later on, but I did have a problem with, uh, Chromium and Chrome and the flat pack of Chrome. None of those worked right after the upgrade but other than that it was smooth and completely devoid of drama in my case at all i haven't tried uh, i haven't tried mint 21 yet but from what i read uh, the most exciting thing for me is the rebasing of uh, of muffin the window manager there it was a fork of uh, of matter gnome's window manager from when gnome 3 was started uh, start was started and they now rebased it on uh, matter 33.36 which is still which is still i think two years outdated but it's uh it's still a better 
it should still make things uh, a lot better and much improved compared to the previous version of Muffin. Well, it puts them in line to be to be more able to start utilizing Wayland in the future too. I think uh, there were some growing pains that Gnome Three had, but then they fixed that. But that was be that was after Muffin was forked, so which were still plaguing the previous versions of Muffin. Uh, some performance issues, so I'm I'm hoping to see uh, much improved performance. Just generally, I don't think they've commented anything on moving to Wayland yet. No, I've seen that uh, Clem says it hasn't been on the roadmap so far, but uh, maybe at some point down the line. Well, I mean, it, it, Wayland is all about the window manager, you know. And now they don't have to worry about it because they're using a window manager that's got the Wayland support, basically, from day one. But also because 21 was just released, now they have a two-year window before mid-22 to decide whether they want to move to Wayland and if they do, to implement it. Okay, Linux kernel 5.19 released with seven new features. This is from Make Use Of. The latest version of the Linux kernel 5.19 has been finally released with several new features and improvements to existing kernel components. ARM-related performance boosts, Intel overheating and battery drain fixes, long arch CPU architecture support, graphical improvements, numerous networking additions, newly enabled accessories, Better compression. The kernel now supports ZSTD compressed firmware. I think I read somewhere that these uh, Intel overheating and battery drain fixes, these battery drain fixes affect uh, Intel CPUs from generation 6 to 10. And a few months ago or weeks ago, someone on Telegram mentioned when I was talking about battery performance in Windows versus Linux. Someone mentioned that while Windows has a better battery life, on most CPUs, Linux seems to have a much improved since Intel Generation 11. And they specifically said that Windows had a better, or rather Linux had a worse battery uh, life between Intel CPUs 6 to 10 generations. So I'm wondering whether this has to do some, this has to do with that. Maybe not because they also said the same thing about AMD uh, CPUs. I don't remember a lot, but it just I just remember that conversation from this. Well, I know that my Intel 11th generation CPU doesn't get as much uh, battery time with Linux as it is advertised, uh, which is, I assume is with Windows in mind. Okay, and as a continuation of that, Linus Torvald released kernel 5.19 on the M2 MacBook Air. And this is also from Ars Technica and Make Use Of. Linux runs on various ARM devices, but the experience pales in comparison to how well Linux runs on Intel devices. While there remains a big gap between the two, progress progress continues. ARM support has reached a level where Linus Torvalds tested and released this version of the kernel using an ARM laptop, an Apple M2 MacBook Air. Special thanks to the Asahi team, which has been working to get Linux up and running on Apple Silicone. should also be noted that I think Linus has gone on record for saying this is going to be the last of the 5. Dot series kernels. Mm. Well, I just Not find that it that surprising. Means anything. 
I just find it surprising how quickly it made it onto the M2, considering how long it took to get onto the M1. Yeah, I think there was some news from the Asahi team that they, they tested the M2 CPUs and they said it was surprisingly easy to uh, port the the kernels and versions and stuff from M1 to work on M2. So it's not it's not that it's different good. from M1. So they weren't starting from scratch the way they were with the M1. And I, I think it was pulled a up graphical acceleration that they were having the most problems with, wasn't it? I think I I think they now even have a, a graphics driver. I'm not sure, but I think it's on the roadmap. I don't know that it's mainlined or anything, but I know that initially when they got graphics working through the CPU, they were some people were getting better performance through the CPU than some other Linux distros were getting through the GPU, which is, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But I, I guess, I guess when I look at it critically, I just think, well, yeah, it's an expensive piece of hardware, you know, so you would expect better performance on a more expensive piece of hardware. Yeah, I don't think people would want to buy Apple hardware with the specific goal to run Linux on it until they can take full advantage of it. And I I quickly pulled up the mailing list uh, on the kernel.org and I just want to read a couple of lines from Linus's email, uh, the announcement. He says, on a personal note, the most interesting part here is that I did the release and I am writing this on an ARM64 laptop. It's something I've been waiting for for a long time and it's finally, rea- and it's finally reality, thanks to the Asahi team. We've had ARM64 hardware around running Linux for a long time, but none of it has really been usable as a development platform until now. It's the third time I'm using Apple hardware for Linux development. I did it many years ago for PowerPC development on a PPC 970 machine, and then a decade plus ago when the MacBook Air was the only real thin and little, thin and light around, and now as an a, as an ARM64 lab platform. So when he says hardware for Linux development, it specifically means that uh, I assume compiling the, the the kernel itself. So I assume he must have compiled the kernel and tested it on the Apple hardware before releasing it. I don't think so. I think he did the development somewhere else and then just... No, I mean compiling as in just testing it. Compiling and testing it before releasing the source code. I mean, I, I, I suppose we could presume that... Uh, Leo in the in the chat is uh, busting your chops a little bit. Linus Torvalds did buy an M2 with that purpose. Norbert apparently he bought that thing with the purpose of updating the Linux kernel. I guess. I mean, again, I don't know how I feel. Obviously, the only use. The only real-world use is for the developers that want they want Linux tools or they want development tools that they can use on a high-end piece of hardware. I don't know. Or, you know, for eventually when Apple just stops supporting this piece of hardware, but yet this piece of hardware still has 15 years of usability left on it. You know, you've still got Asahi that you can run on it and whatever else is available by that time. 
It's impressive, though, to be sure. And now let's move on to security and privacy. Okay, security warning after sale of stolen Chinese data. And this is from BBC.com. President Xi Jinping has urged public bodies to defend information security after a hacker offered to sell stolen data of 1 billion Chinese citizens. In an advert on a criminal form, later removed, the user said the data was stolen from Shanghai National Police. The hacker claims the information includes names, addresses, national ID numbers, and mobile phone numbers. Cybersecurity experts have verified that at least some of a small sample of the data offered is real. The 23 terabytes of data is thought to be the largest ever sale of data on record and was being offered for 200,000 or 166,000 pounds until the post was removed. So the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> yeah. Because in their in their culture it's almost these things when you're when you're taking advantage of other people's technology, it's almost like a normal way of doing things, but when it comes back home to roost, then yeah, now it's a problem. Yeah, like for example how TikTok is a Chinese product but it is banned in China explicitly. And they have a and and they have a separate uh, service with another name for Chinese citizens. No red flags there. Yeah, so they banned it in China because they know it's harmful. But of course, they are they are happy to to export it to abroad. From what I can tell, the most harmful thing about TikTok is all the trucks that go off the road because the driver is sitting behind the wheel watching TikTok videos while he's driving. <laughs> <laughs> And uh -huh. that, yes, kids, that is a thing. And also, people's attention spans seem to be getting shorter and shorter. Way even shorter and even shorter. Even if you're... I, I've never... Create, I never made a TikTok account, and I don't plan to either. And I never really was on Vine, and I don't really use Instagram and anything like that, neither Twitter. Sometimes I browse Reddit. But I sometimes I even notice that my attention span isn't the same as it was five years ago. So it's a bit alarming. Yeah, it's a good time to sit down and read a book. That'll yeah. help. Uh, even when I'm a YouTube, I consciously try to consume more long-form content, like 30-minute-plus uh, video essays and stuff like that, that I can just listen to. That you can crank up to 2x. <laughs> uh, I do that with audiobooks sometimes, but I don't... Uh, when there's a video or essay that has background music, I... I really don't enjoy it when the background music is also 2x. I think it's just kind of a larger um, comment on society at, at large, really. I mean, we're kind of living in this instant gratification time where you can order things and have them delivered to your door the next day. And I think it's just consistent with all of that. One day I was sitting on my bed, browsing Reddit on my phone, and then I noticed that I had one sock on, on one foot. And then I realized that the reason why I sat down on the bed was to put on socks. I put one of them on and then somehow the phone got into my head and I forgot that I was sitting there in the first place. So that was the point when I said, okay, this, this is, this is something that's serious. Yep. Although 
I just say that that's been happening for a very long time. Maybe not because of a phone, but uh, I certainly remember days coming home from like football practice in high school and getting about one sock on before just falling over and calling it good. Okay, well, I'll take this next one since we're a little off track here. Uh, single core CPU cracked post-quantum encryption candidate algorithm in just an hour. This is from the Hacker News, provided by Londoner. Um, a late-stage candidate encryption algorithm that was meant to withstand decryption by powerful quantum computers in the future has been trivially cracked by using a computer running Intel Xeon CPU in an hour's time. The algorithm in question is Psyche, short for Super Singular Isogeny Key Encapsulation, which made it to the fourth round of the post-quantum cryptography standardization process by the U.S. Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology. So I'm wondering how this single-core computer just shredded this algorithm. Uh, can't really say, but that's a little disconcerting, I think, that, uh, you know, you're trying to future-proof for these quantum computing attacks, and, you know, you got a standard x86 core that can crack it in an hour. Took about 62 minutes on a single-core computer. I think all of this is going to change once quantum computing gets in the hands of more people. That might be uh, 10 plus years away still. Yeah. I was looking to see if there was anything else in the article that I could, you know, add. There really isn't. I guess someone created an algorithm that they were hoping was quantum computer proof. And then it looked like it was. And then somebody found a way to crack the algorithm using a single core computer in an hour. Right. That was going to be my next question. How did they create this algorithm? Did they do that on a regular on a regular yeah. computer and then just assume because of the way the math worked that it was quantum. Well, they're going to have know. to, they're, they're going to have to just, that's what they have to do right now because there aren't really any quantum computers. Yeah. So you create it on a regular computer and you try and forward think enough to create something that is quantum computer proof, which seems unlikely. <clears throat> it does. And then, Things like this happen. Yeah, inevitably mistakes will be made. Yeah. I mean, from my point of view, it seems like trying to... Trying to get on... I don't know. What did we have back in the day? Like, get on the Apple IIc and create something that we think is going to work on a PC that we use nowadays. You know, it's... I'm not saying it's not worthwhile, but I'm I'm saying by the time any of this stuff becomes mainstream, it's going to be completely different from anything that we that we might try to uh, predict ahead of time. You know. Yeah, I think like anything within uh, technology, you know, the initial temps are usually crude terrible we've always been terrible i mean it's all fun in games you know really it's just a lot of fun i think to try to predict the direction technology goes but we are almost always way 
way off base. I mean, nobody could have predicted 30 years ago where we would be at right now. When I was in school for sys uh, management in the early 2000s, none of this cloud stuff existed, and nobody was predicting anything like this at the time. They were predi- In fact, they were predicting strange things like operating systems being hard-coded onto hardware, you know, so... We're clearly terrible at predicting the direction of technology. Oh, yeah. Go back and watch some of those sci-fi films from the 70s and look <laughs> at the computers that they had on the, you know, on the spaceships, quote-unquote, there. And uh, Well, uh, yeah. yeah. No, people in the 60s and 70s assuming that uh, computers were still going to take up, you know, whole rooms. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, we can't even get... We can't even get the wardrobes right, let alone the technology. <laughs> oh, parachute pants will come back. Don't worry. <laughs> Reflective <hope> colors. <laughs> <laughs> to quote a Rush song, our great computers fill our hollowed holes. But some, but I mean, may, maybe they, maybe they just assumed that computers would stay the same size because they would just get more and more powerful. By staying the same size. I mean, if you look at the supercomputers nowadays, they still are, like, they still take up enormous, yeah, or like an entire warehouse. So they weren't wrong, I think, because because they they just assumed what the most powerful computers would be like, and in that way, they weren't wrong. There's documentation of some very smart people saying that they never thought that there would be. A computer in everybody's house. I didn't think let that. Let alone one that you could years pick ago. up. Or 30 or years cal- ago. Or a calculator in everyone's pockets. That seems to be well, kind no. of a, on a peak and curve, though, the computer in everybody's houses thing. It seems like now, nowadays you've got computers and people like us. And then everybody else, you know, had a computer in the 90s and early 2000s so they can get on AOL. And then the minute the phones came out. They ditched the laptops. That's certainly true of everybody else in my family and most of my friends that I haven't bullied onto Linux yet. Yeah, I do know a lot of people whose entire interaction with the world is through their phone as yeah. opposed to through a computer. Because that's what they were using the PC for was to take part in the chat rooms and, you know, the instant messages and all that stuff. And Now they can do all of that. Yeah. Through through the phone and it's actually more simple arguably although i don't yeah well arguably more reliable interface yeah that's not that's not inherently a bad thing that no. they can do anything on a phone not really but i mean it's gone a couple of, it's gone a few directions that you know we probably couldn't have predicted you know, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, technology is getting easier to use, so people don't need as much as much knowledge to use it. But it's the same thing as you could say that our ancestors hundreds of years ago had to know agriculture. They had to grow their own food. Now we don't have to grow our own food. So with technology going forward, knowledge being lost in the general population is 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 a given. I mean, something that just inevitable at some point yeah it's it's normal it's interesting though 
it's like when people uh, uh, Linux power users uh, make the argument that people using uh, ready to use distributions out of the box without even having to compile their own kernel, they don't they are not real computer users or something like that. But people who who want to manage their own system, people who want to even talk about some a piece of software, we are a minority. And you're right, because we we people that listen to podcasts about technology and how okay, so we're we're in a niche where we not only want to have access to technology, but we want to understand how it works, how to make it get the most out of it and how to control it and if need be how to come up with something an alternative of sorts and uh okay let me say an example it's in order to use windows you don't necessarily have to know how windows works internally but it's still good uh if you can open up, open up task manager, look at the processes running, and if you have enough knowledge about what is supposed to be there to spot something that maybe isn't supposed to be there, like like a malicious process running at the background. So I I, I guess it's just in a way just well uh, I I was going to say common sense, but something but like something that uh, you pick up when uh, while you're using technology. It's like how we are. Well, uh, subcon- even subconsciously able to recognize a, a web address that might be suspicious and without even uh, saying that, without even being able to tell why it's suspicious. Yeah, I think common sense is a relative thing because, like you described, you know, seeing a URL that might be suspicious, that might be common for the four of us and people that watch this. Yeah, okay. I mean, not, I'm not, don't uh, mean general common sense, but right. common sense no, in a given field if there's such a thing. Yeah. Or common sense combined with knowledge of a given field. I try to share as much as I can because that whole thing with, you know, bogus URLs and all that is getting bigger and bigger all the time. And it's, yeah, we we are the kind of people we can recognize that when we see it. And as such, I almost feel it's incumbent upon us to share that information with people that might not understand that what they're looking at might be something bogus you know like like trackers in the url after the question mark yeah yeah there's some drama about that um (laughs) facebook facebook is encrypting uh, so that it can't be removed at all well then somebody's going to come up with some kind of decrypting engine to run that that means that facebook thinks that i mean how how what is the market share of Firefox right now? Apparently enough for Facebook to come up with an encrypting algorithm. Yeah, to, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, because you know, I, I assumed like 80%, 80 percent, eighty plus percent of people are using Chrome. Yeah, that's what I would have thought, or, or Edge, you know. But you know, Firefox comes out with this announcement, and then and then uh, Facebook goes through the effort of, of encrypting URLs. I didn't even know that was possible, but there you go. So as much as it pains me to say this, I assume that the Firefox user base right now isn't big enough for Facebook to even care and implement a, a countermeasure to that. But because the, the fact that they did, but they did, that though, they did yeah. proves that Firefox still has a substantial influence. 
and they they must have worked that out to a specific dollar amount or at least a a uh, estimated dollar amount in order to get in order to get the company to devote the resources unless it was just so easy for them to do that it didn't even bear mentioning but yeah like like you said it must be firefox users must represent a big enough base that it was worthwhile for them to make the effort yeah that was that was quite a tangent from the topic of quantum computing it was but yeah what do we know about quantum computing anyway you know well and i can recognize a quantum computer as long as it looks like it's supposed to i guess with a keyboard and a monitor and not like a thing to hook directly into your no, brain the, the ones the quantum computers that uh, I've seen in pictures that look like sort of like a chandelier or something. <laughs> yeah. If someone has seen the, the TV show Devs, which I recommend, it's... Uh, yeah. They have one in that. Alright. DuckDuckGo rolls out new Microsoft blockers after Backlash. This is from TechRadar. In late June, researchers discovered that DuckDuckGo's mobile browser permitted Microsoft's trackers to operate by blocking those of Google and Facebook. In a blog post, the company's CEO and founder, Gabriel Weinberg, sought to clarify the issue and set out a series of improvements. The third-party tracker scripts from Microsoft are now blocked from loading across DuckDuckGo's browsing apps, iOS and Android, and browser extensions, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge and Opera. Weinberg further explained how the company was limited in applying its third-party tracker protection program on Microsoft's tracking scripts due to a policy requirement related to DuckDuckGo's use of Bing as a source for search results. The company seems to have ditched the requirement in the meantime. And there's a quote, We are glad this is no longer the case, the CEO said. We have not had and do not have any similar limitation with any other company. In a separate note shared with TechRadar Pro, the company explained it believes the issues were blown out of proportion. Well, let me say it uh, right out the bat that, well, they weren't blocking Microsoft's uh, trackers and they didn't make that clear to users. So most most people, all people, were going to, people were going to DuckDuckGo and using their browsers because they had the impression that it was blocking everything and uh, because they weren't made aware of that I, I don't think it was blown out of proportion yeah I think the transparency aspect is the thing that people had a problem with probably more so than the actual tracking you know the limited tracking that was in there was that they just weren't upfront about it to begin with there uh, this I started hearing buzz about this like a month or two ago and it's still at that time my thought was well it's still better than everything else with the exception of just running firefox proper which is what i do but i had friends that were using the DuckDuckGo browser and i was a little disturbed by it but yeah looking back i think the only reason it bothered me at all is that somebody had to catch them out on this you know they didn't they weren't real forthcoming with it and then immediately you know the the default reaction is to try to minimize it yeah well you know we're still better than everything else you know yeah but 
Yeah, and I think there was a little bit of arrogance there, too. Like, if you read that last part of the quote where they're saying, uh, you know, they believe it was blown out of proportion. It's like, uh, you know, maybe you don't need to say that. <laughs> well, yeah, because that's an opinion. Right. That's an opinion because people are using DuckDuckGo because they don't want to be a part of all of this mass information being fed into the engine, you know, and then for it to just come out and say, yeah, well, DuckDuckGo is giving this information to one of the biggest culprits, the biggest sinners in that space. But it's period, also important you know. to note that this doesn't affect their their search engine. It just it's just their, it's just their the browser. browser. It's just the mobile but, browser. But in a way, it it's not that uh, surprising because you know uh, Mozilla, for example, is mostly funded by Google, and in return, Google is kept as a default search engine in Firefox, and because DuckDuckGo is getting their search results from Bing. In a way, it makes sense that Microsoft would want something in return. I've been trying out various uh, search aggregators like Circs and Google and uh, Start. Well, yeah, I think StartPage is the same that uh, pull results from either Bing or Google or just Google. And I I found a bunch of Circs instances and Google instances that were rate limited by Google because a lot of people were using them. Because there are those, those are not official and those are not uh, endorsed by Google. But because DuckDuckGo is officially, they offic- they have permission from Microsoft to get their search results. It makes sense that Microsoft would, would want something in return. I and think remind this me, the, what is this, the this, DuckDuckGo browser based on? I I I don't think that I'm not sure. That's a Chromium uh, based browser. You guessed it, kids. Yeah, but because so, Chromium is open source, I don't think that's relevant to the tracking. But what is what do you got to have in order to get on the internet with a Chromium-based browser? What do you mean? Don't you have to have all of Google's APIs and all that to no because access the there's uh, ungoogled Chromium which doesn't have anything uh, that goes back to Google and it still works. Well, is that what? DuckDuckGo is based on though, or is it no, just based no, on the Chromium assume, engine? Because, but it's the same with Brave and 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 Vivaldi. Okay. Because when Google takes Chromium and turns it into Chrome, they add a bunch of stuff on top of that. The Chromium itself, the Chromium browser still has some Google API stuff in it, but the forks of Chromium doesn't don't necessarily need to have that or have to have that. I think like Brave or even the DuckDuckGo browser. I think the question is, does Chromium have to access any proprietary and hidden bits in order to get on the internet. I I mean, I, is that even clear? I don't see why that would have to be a thing. Because the internet okay. in its in its foundation is the internet itself is built on open technologies. Okay. Mostly. Well, I think, um, you know, coming back around to uh, DuckDuckGo, they had the endorsement of the EFF behind them, too. So I think they're held to a little bit of a higher standard. Um, you know, a lot of people trust the EFF. So, uh, yeah, I just think all around this just wasn't a real good look for them. 
I try to give some of these projects the benefit of the doubt, though, in reality, because sometimes people go into open source not really having a fantastic idea of how things are interpreted by the community. You know, a big example of that is when uh, Audacity was acquired by Muse Group and, you know, the way they worded some of the changes they were looking to make. They just were not accustomed to the way the community reacts to uh, some of these things and then the, the way the community reacts when information is brought out that wasn't immediately that the company wasn't immediately forthcoming with and then the choices you might make in terms of what technologies you're using on the back end, you know, which you might not think is a big deal, but the community um, has a long, well-defined opinion about, you know, and I don't know that DuckDuckGo, I think DuckDuckGo has always been real good at being privacy and security conscious but uh, as far as, like, the way certain other niche communities might interpret some of the things they do, I don't know. It's just another story about a company not being well prepared for the way things are received, I think. And speaking about uh, Audacity, a lot of people made the argument back then that the, the outcry from the community was uh, also blown out of, was blown out of proportion. But... Uh, I would make the counter argument that be, because they said that the changes weren't as as bad as they as some people said it they were, but maybe the reason that the changes weren't that bad was the result of a small part of the of the community being vocal about the about uh, not liking not not liking the changes. So maybe it wasn't blown out of proportion because if it wasn't blown out of pro- because if there was no outcry, the changes were, would have been way worse. Right, I mean, these. this is your community. This is who you're catering to. So you better have a finger on the pulse and read the room a little bit before you venture into the waters, right? I mean... Yeah, well, I mean, an experienced open source project with experienced open source developers would understand that they would do their development out in the open. They would, they would do all of their, you know... I don't know if the research and all that if it's appropriate to say the research should be done out in the open, but when it comes to making huge dis- huge decisions, you do that in the open, you, you uh, value the community's input on these things. And what the mistake I think that some of these companies make is they, they make these huge decisions, they chuck it over the wall, and then they don't really even say, hey, we did this thing. They Somebody in the community sees and comments on this thing being changed and then it's then it's interpreted as a change that was made that a company is trying to hide or is is trying to to uh secretly make you know it's almost the feeling you get is that that the community almost interprets that as uh decisions being made in spite of the opinions of the community itself you know so it takes somebody that understands how an open source community interprets things and reacts to things to uh, have a direct involvement with the decision process or at least the communication process you know 
Yeah. You mentioned the EFF. I know it stands for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Are they also uh, open source advocates? Because I don't, don't really know anything about them. Yeah, yeah. They have a website, and I'd suggest taking a look at it. They do a lot for the open source community. I know about the uh, the Free Software Foundation. So compared to that, what uh, was the difference between them and the, the the Electronic Frontier Foundation? Oh goodness, uh, probably couldn't really do a short synopsis on that. I would say just take a look at the you know the website and look around. But we could we could <laughs> do an inerts uh, in a future episode about uh, the various foundations and. Uh, the, and organizations that uh, support free software. That would be an interesting topic. In some cases, it just comes down to the projects that they back. Like um, the Free Software Foundation, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and even the, the yeah. Linux. Uh, is it called the Linux Foundation? Uh, oops. EFF, Digital Freedom. Leo is commenting. Uh, EFF, Digital Freedom... FSF software freedom. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, there's some delineation going on there. So it's, you know, EFF is for a little bit more than the software. It's yeah, so they, probably the privacy and the, the user data side of things. Yeah, and you know, not necessarily not necessarily the software, just like the entire content. The, the entire yeah. digital content for example how uh, signal the signal messenger is centralized but still very private so it something doesn't have to be completely decentralized and and a fully uh, community maintained in order to be private that's Privacy a good point respecting. yeah because it depend it depends on the thing that the software is doing whether or not it would it would work better to be centralized or decentralized um I think the EFF is one of the big backers of some of the projects that you see on uh F-Droid. Oh gee whiz. Okay. I just realized that we are going on tangent after tangent here. Well, we but got I a mean, short topic. I mean, th- these are great discussions. Yeah. I'm not saying it in a negative way. Linux 6.0 adding runtime verification for running on safety critical systems. This is from Forex. Linux developer Daniel Bristol de Oliveira has been exploring runtime verification for Linux in the past few years, and the implementation is set to be mainlined as part of the tracking updates in this next kernel. He summed up this feature as, quote, Over the last years, I've been exploring the possibility of verifying the Linux kernel behavior using runtime verification. Runtime verification, or, or RV, is a lightweight yet rigorous method that complements classical exhaustive verification techniques such as model checking and theorem proving with a more practical approach for complex systems. Instead of relying on a fine-grained model of a system, for example a re-implementation of an instruction level, RV works by analyzing the trace of the system's actual execution, comparing it against a formal specification of the system behavior. The usage of deterministic automation for RV is a well-established approach. In the specific case of the Linux kernel, you can check how to model complex behavior for, of the Linux kernel with this paper. And he also added a TLDR, which says it is possible to model complex behaviors in a modular way with an acceptable overhead even for production systems. So, 
I'd like to I'd, li I'd like to think that I understood most of this, but I might be lying. But basically, this is just trying to model things to be able to monitor uh, process ex uh, command uh, process execution in a more efficient way. Yeah. Well, so I, I think it's it's something like uh, the the CPU mitigations, but on a more higher level, on the kernel level. I think it's part of the push. There's been some additions to the kernel to make it more real time too, and I I think a lot of that's going to come out in the. By real time, you mean low latency? Well, I think you've got low latency, and I think you've got. Wham! Now, click, mm -hmm. point, click, boom! It's there, um, and there's going to be a lot of real time stuff going into the six dot whatever kernel when it comes out. And I'm wondering if this has a lot to do with that because it seems like really, really low level stuff that might improve our ability to move to more and more towards a more uh, real time. I have a friend who but, is doing their uh, PhD right now in computer science. They they might be able to to comment more on this. Yeah. And that's all for. Uh, does anyone have anything to add to this? No. All right. And that's all for security and privacy. Let's move on to our biweekly wanderings. Bill. Well. Yeah. Uh, Work's not been much fun for the last couple of weeks. Um, the last two we uh, Mondays I've taken off for two different reasons from work, that is. Um, the Tuesday before last, I took off, took off from Fort Wayne with a small load of copper for Trenton, New Jersey. This was supposed to be a rather gravy or easy, as we say, run, given how small the load was. And how easy the customer was to get to. Normally, when we take off with a load of copper, it's um, uh, for that type of customer, it's eleven skids, and and the uh, the payload weight or the freight weight is about forty four thousand pounds, plus the weight of the truck and trailer. It's about eighty thousand pounds in my case, which is fine, but. You know, you, you lose some speed going up and down the hills. You got to do a little bit of shifting and all that. This particular customer only gets three or four skids, which is so little weight that it's almost like going all the way out there empty, which is kind of like a day off, just driving, listening to music. And well, anyway, when I got about a hundred miles into Pennsylvania, which is about six hours into the trip, I started to hear a strange sound coming from the transmission. Uh, the sound got progressively louder, and to make a rather long and boring story short, I was forced to take refuge in the nearest truck stop, which was a Sap Brothers at the 120-mile marker in Pennsylvania on I-80. Um, after calling the boss, the decision was made to send a replacement truck on a low-boy trailer uh, which basically meant I was stuck in that truck stop from 3.30 that afternoon to about 1 o'clock the next day when, I don't know, he showed up at about 11 o'clock, but it, it takes a couple hours to get 
one truck off and get all my stuff moved into it and then back my truck onto it. We had to remove the stacks, the exhaust stacks from the side because sitting on that trailer there at about 1310 and you can only 13 foot 10 inches and you can only be 13 feet 6 inches legally going down the road without a special permit and then you would have to be routed by Department of Transportation which costs a lot of money so we took the stacks off and by the time we got done with that I got out of there in reality I think it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon by the time I got out and then uh, I headed off to Trenton I didn't actually get delivered until that next morning um and of course when i got back i found out the boss sent the truck to the kenworth dealer to get a new transmission put in it and at this point right now as we record i'm still without my truck and i won't get it back until tuesday night when i get back from cape Girardeau, missouri which is where i'm taking off for tomorrow as we record i assume um, it must legitimately feel like a part of you is missing so the machine is the extension of the man yeah how long you have know? you been driving this this same truck five and a half years in the same truck which is actually pretty substantial um when we bought the truck well he bought the truck for me that's the way i choose then to interpret it because the people he buys trucks off of they work kind of like drug dealers they bring trucks they'll get a truck that they've got for sale and they'll bring it and they'll just park it in his yard just to hey we got this thing and then he he looks at it and decides if he wants it and then buys it and in this case i remember i saw the truck and then i commented to him that this was a kind of truck that uh I've always wanted ever since I was young and I've never gotten one and so he bought it and he gave it to me and so you know nobody's ever done anything like that for me before so it kind of gave me this emotional attachment to the doggone thing you know when he bought it it had 700,000 miles on it which sounds like a lot but for a truck an over-the-road truck that's about anyway you look at it that's still a hell of a gift yes yeah i mean i've made him rich so it's it's <laughs> we've gotten uh equal value proposition out of it but when you're when you've been in a truck that long you've moved all your stuff to your stuff into it and you've gotten used to that particular workflow and i've got like a desk layout in that thing where i've got my laptop and i'm able to do stuff you know i could actually even i could actually even film a show from the cab of that truck if I had to. Um, and that being said... I want to see that one of these times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be an unfortunate... <laughs> that'll be unfortunate if we do, but yeah, it would be interesting. It would all rely on LTE technology because my phone... All the internet comes from my phone, and I don't have a 5G phone, so, I mean, it is what it is, but... I mean, part. I mean, that caused a problem 
with this week's episode because originally our topic for this week was supposed to be a start of a series of episodes focused on pen testing distributions, pen penetration testing distributions. And we were going to start with Kali Linux, and I had like a whole plan of YouTube videos and, and websites that I was going to do all my research on, and I was going to become a proper Kali hacker. And we were going to, I was going to stream a virtual machine of Kali while we were talking about that, but I just wasn't able to do the research during the week because I didn't have my, my truck has like a, fold-out desk where I can put the laptop and the mouse and all that. And then the truck I had to use, I didn't have all that. So I just wasn't able to do any of that, um, any of that research. So I was completely unprepared. And that's why we've got this 100% improv topic that we're going to talk about in the innards today. So it'll um, probably be the sort shortest section today. Might be. Yeah. Um, but I just anyway, tested this pen yeah. and it still works. <laughs> pen it's, testing. It's, it's, it's Get really it, kids. Hanging fruits. Right. The first time when I when I uh, heard a friend saying that the, he's using uh, Debian testing, that was the first time I heard about Debian testing. I assumed that it was a penetration testing branch of Debian, but no, it just it just uh, the testing branch. But yeah, in case someone doesn't know what pen testing means, it's basically cybersecurity penetration testing. Kali has a bunch of tools pre-installed for uh, things like that, and because of it, a lot of hackers like to use it. And I, <laughs> the more I got into this, the more I got to thinking. Yeah, I wonder what the. Uh, ratio is between hackers and actual pen testers is because you couldn't just you couldn't make a distribution like Kali and say this is the hackers distribution we got hacker software on there which it absolutely does but that's just my opinion um you know it's there's there is a lot to it and i want to be able to when i when we come out with this series of shows i want to be able to have uh real good content content. informed content to to go by so i didn't think it would be a good idea to get started until we did um so i we went ahead and postponed that um anyway so that's all for work now moving forward to my to uh some of the tech issues i've been dealing with when i came home this week i did my relatively routine ZFS scrub on the next cloud server, which for anybody that doesn't know that mint cloud, our Mintcast has a next cloud server, which we don't use very much, but I've got it up and, and running and ready to take the place of our Google drive to start, managing all of our cloud-based storage and it runs fine but it's running on a rock pro 64 which is a for anybody that doesn't know is a single board um it's a single board kind of like a raspberry pi except it's more it's a little bit more niche so it doesn't have an official uh 
foundation behind it, making software and operating system as such. And the most official thing you can get for it is uh, Debian. They make it. They make it. Well, they, there's Armbian for it too, but the most low-level distribution you can get for it is Debian. And so I've got that installed, and then I installed Nextcloud on it the hard way, and it's fine. But every now and then it just seems to screw up. Whenever I try to run any kind of raid on it, when I when I was using ButterFS and I was using native ButterFS raid. It was screwing up. It was it was causing a lot of errors, and with ButterFS, it doesn't self-heal the way ZFS does. So I switched to ZFS, and it was not a problem really until recently. The second of the two hard drives in the mirror started getting a lot of errors, and then it wasn't able to recover from them, and so I detached that drive from the array, and then resilvered it and reattached it, and now it's not a mirror anymore. It's a uh, striped ZFS array. I'm just about I'm just about through with this thing. I think the next my next big uh, computer purchase is going to be a proper x86 server to run our next cloud on because uh i think if ever we're going to switch to it and start using it and start taking it seriously it needs to be something that we can rely on and i'm just not comfortable with uh with its uh ability to keep data secure so i can't read that no, I'm just trying to get my webcam to lower the brightness. You need to turn light on that room. It's just a blank paper. Hmm. Sort of working. There you go. Yep. Let's hope it stays there. But it's, it's going to crank back up, though, I bet you. We'll see. Yeah, um, it is doing that, yeah. <laughs> it's too bad we don't have, you know, granular controls over these webcams as to you know the the brightness and all that stuff you know webcams are one of those things in computing that seem to be not as great as they should be like how printing is sometimes a pain printing is evil and we should all do what we can to get away from it um so yeah, that's what I'm dealing with with the next cloud server. It's working, but it's not mirrored anymore, and so I'm I'm going to be more diligent at keeping uh, more regular ZFS send receive uh, backups of it to make sure that we don't lose anything. Um, okay, so I ran Mint upgrade right before the show and as as we record right now i'm running on mint 21 and everything seems to be working fine with the exception of chrome and chromium which was absolutely unusable after the upgrade and i'm still not sure why after the upgrade uh uh, Chrome was uh, hanging every time I would click on anything, not just the web page, but any of the controls in the UI. It would just hang for several seconds between between the time that I would click on it and the time it would respond. So everything we're doing right now is running through 
Firefox, which I don't have a real problem with. I would actually prefer it that way. It's just that when it comes to podcasting and when you're using all the tools, all the Google tools on the back end, Chrome is a little easier to use for all that stuff. But uh, it's not a deal breaker by any means. But uh, that's pretty much all I've got going on. The, the the Like I said, the update has been without drama. And when it restarted and came back, oh, yeah, I did have to rearrange. I've got a three-monitor set up here in front of me right now, and I did have to rearrange in the display settings where these monitors were at. But that's almost... That's almost a non-issue. I think they even changed how this display setup works. I think they were using something else, and now they are using uh, what GNOME is using. So maybe they didn't remember because uh, the way yeah. it, the, it, the displays are set up has changed. Would that be part of the window manager? Uh, I'm not sure. I think, yeah, it, that, I think it it's, makes it's, sense. it's separate. I think it's on the DX or server level or something like that. Okay. But that was almost a non-issue. I just went into the to the display settings and then rearranged the monitor layout and it was back to normal and it's working fine. There's not a lot. I mean, there's no like real shocking user interface changes that I'm aware of except now I've got a Bluetooth icon down in my tray. I use the cinnamon version, by the way. And there's the Bluetooth, but I it's not even enabled, so I might I might at some point get rid of that. But yeah, that's all I've got. How about you, Joe? Oh boy, get your fast forward ready. Uh, well, I got a lot done with the uh, Bluetooth devices that I was improving. I ruined a few learning how to do things. Um, I know a lot of the crew watched my frustrations last Saturday and probably didn't understand why I was putting myself through that. Uh, but much like when you reach a plateau in weightlifting, you need to stretch your other skills in order to advance yourself. Uh, so I think I completely ruined like two of those little boards. Um, one that I discussed last time where I used too much heat on the board and one where I got the iron a little too close to a resistor and it came off the board. It was so small that I could not figure out how to reattach it. But uh, those two failures left me with a board for measuring the 3D prints and experience on how to do things on the board in the future. And these are uh, um, these I, Bluetooth receivers, right? That you can plug something into. Yeah, yeah, they were Bluetooth headsets. No, the only thing I plug into them is uh, MMCX. They're Bluetooth headsets, and I added uh, larger batteries, MMCX, different buttons, and um, a, a new casing. I mean, uh, were you there on Saturday when I was working on it? Yeah, okay. Um, I have one that I put together with the, that the team watched most of the process for. It was very slow, and I got a little frustrated while trying to attach the new buttons. Um, I also found out how difficult it was to attach the buttons to the casing um, when everything else was in the way. Um, it showed me that I needed to keep the wires for the buttons shorter so that they don't get in the way and that the pegs on the buttons would need to be trimmed or they could easily short each other out. This one went together and there was an end product, but the buttons were not seated correctly and the volume up button is shorted to the power button. And so I have 
two power play buttons and a volume down button. Um, it has a small problem with overheating and that needed to be compensated for in the next build. Um, this also taught me the order to do things in regards to the overall build. I also learned that in this case, it was better to use a slightly thicker wire for the buttons instead of the 0.01 millimeter wire that I was using. I, I switched to some of the headphone wire that I had handy and it worked a lot better and much faster with much less frustration. The 3D design uh, was modified to provide more access to the mic and to put a gap between the top of the board and the casing. That was to provide a little bit of airflow so that it didn't overheat. I also soldered to the pegs on the buttons first and then glued the buttons into place, which is then a two-hour wait. Um, then measure and, and pull through the MMCX cables and tie the knot so that they're the correct length and solder those cables into place so that they don't interfere with the sidewall when in position. Once the buttons are dried, I can solder the, um, the wires, the trailing wires to the buttons on the board and solder the battery into place as well. Move everything into position in the casing, which is a tight fit with all the wires and the oversized battery. Test everything to make sure that it works as it should, and then glue on the back, which is another two hours. Then once the back is glued on, you can glue the shirt clip to the back, which is, once again, another two hours. Um, that's the best order because of the clamping and the various angles. The last one that I did with the last board left came out really good with each button working as it should and the overall sound quality excellent. The mic on these devices leaves a little bit to be desired, but what can you really expect for a $4 device? In the end, there isn't much I would change about the final product except that I would want something that does not need to be completely glued together. Right now, it lacks repairability when things go wrong. I can cut the device apart and pull all the usable parts out and reprint the casing, but that's definitely not ideal, especially when it comes to the buttons because they're glued directly to the casing. So just like my um, previous laptop that I had to glue together because of solid falling apart. Yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of keyboard or a lot of uh, laptops when you take them apart, they got those plastic pegs that hold the keyboard into place. So if your keyboard goes bad, you have to replace it. You got to find another way to stick it up there and make it fit right. Yeah, this laptop, it's one of those uh, two-in-ones that you can fold in out of 360 degrees, but it's also a, had a plastic uh, casing. So the plastic these uh, drives that the the screws go into had to be glued. Uh, uh, factory glued onto the the plastic uh, casing, and when those come off, there's not really a good way to put those together back. So my new laptop has a yeah. uh, aluminum, I think it's aluminum chassis. So I don't expect that to happen. Okay, um, I may order more of the Pulse headsets, um, so I can do a full write up of the entire process with images each step of the way, or you know, do a proper YouTube video of the entire process. But um, I also picked up six more Bluetooth headsets, this time for $3.25 each. But they have a different design and a different layout. I don't necessarily like where the mic position is, but it's still the same concept. Um, this time I want to 3D design a modular system to just easily switch out batteries and connectors. I have all of these lower capacity batteries from the previous build plus a few more of the higher capacity batteries left, although they're older and I don't know how long they'll work for. 
Um, I also want to be able to quickly switch between 3.5 millimeter and MMCX. Um, I think I could also add pass-through charging, which would make it a much more useful in like a car, especially if you have the 3.5 on there. Um, modular would also allow for future upgrades. And thinking of ways to use some of the retractable headsets that I have on a build like this, um, I think it would make it a little bit bulkier than I want, but yeah. Uh, moving away from Bluetooth devices, I know not everyone likes to hear about the hardware that I like working on, but I enjoy it and some people seem to like it. A listener to a couple of my other shows uh, sent me a device to work on um, that they didn't have the patience to finish. This is a Pi Zero Game Boy mod. It was called the Zega Mame Boy. Um, I loved working on it and, uh, I did get to try it out, but, um, there's like a hard short there and I'll do a full write up on it probably for the next show. Cause I, I got done working on it, um, like Friday afternoon. So not much time to put all the information here, but needless to say, there is a hard short on it and I'm not sure if it's the Zega board or the, um, the Pi Zero, but those two are, you know, stuck together with solder and pins and very hard to separate. So I'm probably going to try to remove it, but it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, I have at least temporarily converted my middle child to Linux Mint. Her laptop hard drive died, and but I replaced it. I was entirely too lazy to download Windows. But I had Mint ready to go, so that is what she has on it for now. Um, on that one, I also needed to replace the battery, and um, that's just, you know, a throw money at it type of problem. But she hasn't had any complaints about the device yet, and she is currently using the device to sign up for her first semester of college. So, yeah. And I already talked about the uh, Zega MAME. So, Norbert, what have you been up to? Well, um, I sort of had to fix my sleep schedule. Uh, at the end of June, at the end of the the exam period, my sleep schedule was way way out of uh, sync with what it was supposed to be, and uh, I was going to bed and waking up way later than I should have. And there was a weekend uh, at the uh, somewhere in July when I woke up late but still felt very tired because I haven't been sleeping a lot in the previous weeks so I just decided to go back to sleep and I wake up again sometime in the, during the day and I went back to sleep again and I slept like 10 plus hours and I woke up in the afternoon and I, I said to myself well if I if I if I keep uh, having these 28 hour days then after two or three days I should be going back around to waking up when I should so the next day I, so then I stayed awake at night and then went to sleep the next day and I woke up around 8 p.m. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I stayed awake the next night and the next day I woke, I woke up around sometime around midnight and this, in this way I managed to get to a point when I was waking up at 6 a.m. And I thought, but the thing is, that after not having a lot of sleep for a couple of weeks or maybe even a month, uh, getting like 10 plus hours of sleep 
for two or three days in a row somehow made me feel even more tired and less rested. I guess my body was just trying to get used to actually getting enough rest again. And it's been a couple of weeks. I'm... I keep feeling better. It's still not, I still don't feel perfectly rested, but I think you're supposed to be able to uh, get enough rest in like two weeks. So maybe a couple of days and I will be, well, I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't feel, I don't feel sick or something. I just, uh, I just uh, feel myself getting tired uh, after staying, after being awake a lot less than, than, than I, than I used to, but it's, it's getting better. On the tech side of things, I installed uBlock Origin for Firefox, which is an ad blocker plus tracker blocker. And somehow I managed to go all these years without ever installing any ad blocker or tracker blocker in my browser. And uh, I've heard many in many places that uBlock Origin is sort of the golden standard for ad and tracker blocking for Firefox nowadays. So I installed it and uh, I, I started using it with the default settings. And in some websites, I kept seeing the badge on the icon, the number of uh, trackers blocked, the number just crawling up. And after having YouTube or Discord open for like a couple of hours, it even reaches the three three digit uh, heights. And I just, uh, you can even see the the website so the trackers is blocking and i just i was just shocked that to see that i knew that websites have a lot of trackers but uh, i kind of uh, underestimated their numbers so then i started to look into a bit into tracker blocking and i came across uh, a couple of websites uh, and i came across a couple of youtube channels one of them is techlore and the other one is the new oil and I found uh, a podcast that they do together called uh, Surveillance Report each week, which is basically like our security segment, but on steroids. They have a 30 or 40 plus minute podcast each week, all about security and privacy. They uh, cover like new research in security data breaches and uh, malware and uh, hacks and stuff like that. So it's it's a really uh so I it's the best uh, resource I I found so far in this uh, in this field. So if, so if someone wants to be up to date with security and privacy related news, I can really recommend that. And I also found another uh podcast called Opt Out uh run by uh, a guy called Set for Privacy. He sits down with various people who are working uh, in with projects related to security and privacy. For example, uh, projects like Nextcloud or Bitwarden to people who are involved in various cryptocurrencies. And it's a really easy to understand uh, both of these podcasts, as well as the two channels I mentioned, TechLore and The New Oil. These are, I found this to be really good resources for someone who is just getting started with uh, getting into privacy and security and how things work. So I can I can recommend all these four resources. I've been listening to a bunch of episodes of the New Oil specifically, and there have been a, a lot of great uh, discussions from with people uh, around the world. So, and I also 
found a couple of videos on TechLore about uh, Android ROMs. And I started looking into reading up on Calyx OS and Graphene OS because I've always just used the stock Android ROM that came with my phone. And even if I wanted, I shouldn't uh, put a custom ROM on my current phone, which is an LG G7 because of the, the specific, specifically the hardware, this uh, quad deck that uh, it uses for audio playback via uh, wired headphones. The firmware for it just doesn't work on any custom firmware at all, but it's still interesting. Specifically, Calyx OS, which uh, only seems to support Pixel devices uh, right now, and I think it has a sort of a sandboxed implementation of Google Play services. So it allows you to download apps from the Play Store, but not uh, grant all the permissions to Google Play services that it usually has on a regular Android ROM. Uh, and I realized I... Okay. And I also decided to try ProtoMail. Did I also did I already cover it uh, in a previous show? ProtoMail? Or just at the end of the show? Uh, show? I don't think so. I think okay. you mentioned mm-hmm. it to us somehow or another, but I don't remember you talking to about. Yeah, I think about I mentioned it, it in, one of the, in one of the announcements at the end of a show. I... Yeah. Every time Moss... Uh, Re, uh, every time Moss, uh, every time at at the end of each show, when Moss uh, reads his email address, I keep thinking how much I like the. I kept thinking I really like how ProtoMail gives people the the ability to have at pm.me emails because I really like how short and and easy to understand and easy to remember that is, and I wanted to have a new email address that is very short, so I decided to. Uh, uh, subscribe to ProtonMail. I think I mentioned that when we were talking about our subscriptions. You actually get the at ProtonMail and the at pm.me no, in it. Yeah. Uh, I think you I think you get that. You get those in the free version as well. But now yeah, since they changed their, their branding, they also have the proton.me uh, uh, and not just the protonmail.com. So you can have a proton.me and you can have the same address with an at pm.me for free. Yeah, but that's in what the, I've got. But in the premium one, but in the premium subscription, you get to have 10 extra, you get, you get to have up to 10 different email aliases, which all uh, are tied to your single one, to your one inbox. So I decided to create a couple of ones so I can have a personal and I can have a, uh, another email that I use, uh, which I use on services like GitHub and, and the like. So, so far, and so far, I'm really, really uh, satisfied with ProtonMail. You you even get to have a a cust- you even get to have a custom domain with the regular uh, premium subscription. I don't have uh, the domain yet, but I might take advantage of that in the future. I also. And speaking of uh, Firefox, I also did some customizing. I may have I may have uh, mentioned this before, but I just got rid of the the bookmarks bar because I realized I don't really use that use it that often. So I just have a single folder icon that I can have for my most important bookmarks. And I even 
and I found a way to merge the tab bar and the address bar into one single row. So I went, I went from the, the browser having three, uh, bars, three layer, uh, three rows, like the tab layer, the address bar and the bookmarks to just have one single row for all of those. And it gives you so much free space. Actually, I think I mentioned this two shows ago. Uh, yeah. And while I was watching a video on the previously mentioned channel, so, so eventually I want to move as many of my services that I use to, so in addition to use, so in addition to, so in addition to moving to ProtoMail, I also found a website called justdeleteme.xyz. And what it is, it is a list of online services and it ranks them based on how easy it is or how hard it is to delete your unused account on those, on those services. And I came across this website while watching, uh, a course, a course on tech, on the TechLore channel called, uh, they have a course, uh, of, I think it's like 50 videos which uh, it goes through how you can improve your online uh, privacy and security. And one of those steps is to delete all your unused accounts because the more accounts you have, the more likely that one of them might be caught up in a data breach or, yeah. And and, and he listed a resource, which is this website, just delete me.xyz. And uh, it's just a lot, and it's just a huge list of various services. The main point is that it it uh, it ranks them based on how hard it is to remove your account, but it is also good for reminding you of various accounts that you might have, because you might not remember all of the websites that you signed up for. But if you just go through this list and you come across uh, services that you that you have but might might have forgotten, it, it just reminds you. So I started going through that and deleting my accounts. And I don't think I have much else to say. Uh, I also tried to on Linux on the Linux side of things. I also also tried to move away from uh, apps that uh, don't support Wayland to apps that actually to apps that support to apps that do support Wayland. But uh, when I moved from the Discord client to the web version, the client itself doesn't run on Wayland because it's using an outdated version of uh, of Electron. And even when I explicitly tried to pass an argument to Discord to tell it to use Wayland, it has a bug. And that bug is specific to that old version of Electron that Discord is using. So, but in the browser version, I kept having weird uh, connection errors which are not happening in the in the desktop client version, so I just went back to using the desktop client. And I also started using Element and the matrix messaging more. And I was and I realized that uh, their client, their desktop client, also doesn't uh, run on Wayland by default. And I think I also didn't manage to get that to work properly. But but it is using the most recent version of Electrum, which is interesting. And yeah. That's what I wanted to say. So, Josh? All right. Well, I don't have a whole lot to report on here, but uh, last Sunday, woke up to some good news. Linux Mint 21 had been released. So, 
once I got out of bed and got a little coffee going, I did a nuke and pave on my uh, main desktop machine. I used time shift to take a quick snapshot and then copied my home folder contents onto an external SATA M.2 drive. Um, the install went just as easily as all previous had been with no issues to speak of. You know, like any version of Mint, it was just a piece of cake. And uh, after transferring over all of my files and redoing my configurations, I was back to a seemingly unchanged desktop experience. Took a few hours at most. So, I haven't had much time this week to spend on the computer, so I haven't had a chance to fully explore the changes in Mint 21 yet, but functionality seems to be largely unchanged. Uh, with the little free time I have had, I've been working in the backyard, trying to get both it and my patio cleaned up so that I can have a nice reading space by the time the cooler weather comes in. And I have a couple consecutive weeks of vacation coming at the end of the month, so right now I'm just trying to knock out around the house tasks so that I can be mostly free to mess around when it gets here. I'm counting the days right now. So uh, that's when I'll probably take a little bit uh, deeper dive into Mint and play around with it. And uh, Like I said, you know, it's Mint. It's cinnamon on top. It looks basically the same. Uh, I did notice a couple of the apps, you know, they got uplifted, have a little bit different look to them. Like uh, Lollipop Music Player looks a little different than it did in 20.3. Um, but aside from that, yeah, it's it's all been pretty much same old, same old. And that's about all I've done. Is the dark theme also a different shade of gray? I think it might be darker. Uh, if it is, I certainly haven't noticed it. It looks really similar to me, but uh, I don't have the greatest eye for those types of things, so it could be. It might it might have been just my eyes fooling me when I was looking at a couple of screenshots. I noticed the terminal looked a little different in terms of the color, I'm, uh, but I can't quite put my finger on it. They also I have, a, I think it's part of the, the Muffin Rebase that they, they uh, Mint can handle title bars and header bars better now. Mm. Yeah, I suppose it does look a little bit more, I don't know. I might just Elegant. be make, filling in the blanks, you know. It looks, well, I mean, it looks a little bit more, I don't know, it flows better from the title bar into the application itself. I'm just looking at a couple of things here. I just got this installed a couple hours ago as we speak, and it just, there was enough of a difference in the way the terminal looks. We'll get into all this here in a few minutes, but. There was enough of a difference in the way the terminal looked to catch my eye. Like, wait a minute, that's it's all dark now. Which I think there was like a, a gradient or a, a difference between the darkness between the title bar and the menu bar or something like that. Something's different. I can't quite put my finger on it yet, but yeah, that's all I've noticed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mintcast. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. 
Send us an email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube, which uh, we are live every every two weeks on we on weekends. You can post at the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram, Discord, and Facebook, or post directly at mintcast.org. And our next and our next uh, live episode recording will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, the 21st of August, 2022, uh, on the Mintcast YouTube channel. And uh, we have a link in the show notes for to convert this to your own time zone. Our next live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, the 13th of August, 2022. We have these uh, roundtable streams every other weeks every other weekend when we don't have a show recording uh, where anyone can join us on Discord for a discussion. And you can also, yes, and you can also uh, convert this to your own time zone via link. Our next live stream, which is not a show recording, will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, the 27th of August, 2022, which is a roundtable discussion where anyone can just where anyone can join us in the Discord for for this for for a laid back uh, discussion, and you can also uh, get this converted to your own time zone via the link in the description. And you can and you can get all the live stream information at mintcast.org/livestream. And now for the wrap up, you can send me an email at norbert at mintcast.org. How about you, Joe? Well, you can catch me on a couple of my other shows. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which you can find at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which you can find at linuxlugcast.com. I'm not really using MeWe anymore, but you can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org, or buy me a coffee on Kofi. And as for Moss... Um, you can, there are links for his fir- Full Circle Weekly News, Distro Hoppers Digest, you can uh, send him a message, bardmoss at pm.me, and his other information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Well, you can email me at uh, bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore h on Discord, at wchauser3 on Twitter, at WC Hauser 3 on Facebook. Also, check out my other podcast. Uh, the website is 3ftpodcast.org. The name of that website, or the name of that podcast is 3 Fat Truckers. You can get me at uh, JT at Mintcast.org, Josh Thacker on Discord, and at Metal underscore Foss on Twitter. Which I'd like to add is the greatest Twitter handle in history. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Our team of editors, Bill for all his work on the website and hosting our next cloud, Hopstar for our logo, Initardi for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time syncs, Bill for hosting the Linode, which runs our website, Archive.org for hosting our audio files, and finally, and last but not least, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro that we'll have to talk about. Thanks, Thanks for Slam. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. 
You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint.